beginning at verse 13, reading to the end of verse uh, 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of our God, may he bless it in our hearing uh, this afternoon. Beloved in the Lord Jesus, I reviewed um, yesterday your church's uh, vision statement. And if you don't know what your church's vision statement is, that's okay. A lot of people in a local church don't know what the church's vision statement is. But I will share it with you uh, to refresh you. This is your statement. We exist by the grace of God for His glory and to enjoy him forever. God's grace and glory will, were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we seek to know, live, and share his gracious love. I want to highlight what is found at the end, that you seek to share his gracious love. Uh, What does it mean to share God's gracious love? It means to show others the love of Jesus. Show others the love that Jesus has shown you. It means to share with others the good news of the kingdom of God. That in Jesus Christ, His beloved Son... The kingdom has come near, and it will soon be here in all of its fullness and glory. And that's good news because sin and evil exist in this world. And while we experience the presence of evil in our world and in our lives and even in our own hearts, the good news is that Christ has overcome sin, Christ has overcome evil, He even says he has overcome the world. And he has done all this through his death and his resurrection. Now we just read a few moments ago from the beginning of Mark chapter 2. And we see in that passage that there is forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. We see in that same passage the good news that Christ has not only triumphed over sin, he's triumphed over the effects of sin. And so he says to the paralytic, rise, get up your, uh, pick up your mat and go home. 
And every one of those healings that we encounter in the gospel ministry of Jesus is is a little signpost pointing ahead uh, to the fullness of the kingdom of God where everything wrong uh, will be made right and where everything that is sad is going to come untrue. And to enter into this kingdom, to participate in this glorious reality, all people everywhere need to heed the call of Christ. The call of the gospel, Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, repent and believe, said Jesus, as he arrived in Galilee preaching the kingdom of God. And so as a local church, it is fitting that part of your vision is to share the gracious love of God in Jesus Christ by sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. But it is a lot easier to put that kind of thing on paper and post it on a website than it is to live out in the day-to-day reality of the church of Jesus. And that is because there's all sorts of things that tend to get in the way of us realizing uh, the vision that we adopt for ourselves as local churches of Jesus. And one one of the things that actually gets in the way of the vision you have set for yourself is the pursuit of holiness. And I want you to think about that because uh, it's meant to get you to think. One of the things that gets in the way of fulfilling the vision of your local church is the pursuit of holiness. You say, how is it possible that the pursuit of holiness would get in the way of our pursuing our vision? Well, to answer that question, We have to turn to the scripture uh, this afternoon that is set before us, Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Uh, You see there the title for my sermon, Calling Sinners, and we're going to look at the text and see the power of Jesus' call, and we'll see the outrage at Jesus' call, and then we're going to consider, in closing, the pattern in Jesus' call. Um, I love uh, professional baseball, and while I'm not old enough uh, to remember the great Yankee catcher Yogi Berra, uh, I am very familiar with some of his uh, sayings. And uh, my favorite Yogi Berra saying is, it's deja vu all over again. And uh, that is what our text is this afternoon, uh, especially in the verses 13 and 14. It's deja vu literally all over again. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea. Mark could have written, he went out beside the sea, but he doesn't. He writes, he went out again beside the sea. And you're like, why are you doing this? And Mark's like, because I already told you about Jesus going out beside the sea. Chapter 1, verse 16, passing alongside the sea of Galilee. And then Mark says again, because he wants us to connect these two passages. And it becomes very obvious that he wants us to connect these two passages because they're almost complete... uh, images of each other. For not only do we discover that again he's passing by the sea, but when we get in our text, chapter 2, verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Go back to chapter 1. Jesus passes by the sea, and he sees Peter, or Simon, and Andrew spreading their nets, casting their nets into the sea. And he sees Uh, James and John uh, mending their nets in the boat. So we have this this repetition. We've got Jesus, he's going by the sea, 
and he sees men working. And both in chapter one and here in chapter two, he says to each of those men, follow me, and immediately each one of those five men rose and followed Jesus. It's a deja vu all over again. Levi, in our text, he gets up, having heard the command, follow me, he gets up and he follows Jesus. He, he does the same thing Peter and Andrew do, did. He does the same thing James and John did. And it, it's so brief a statement, and he rose and followed him, that we, we even can begin to forget the significance of this moment. That Levi, like Peter and Andrew, like James and John, is leaving his livelihood, and in many ways leaving his life as he has known it all his life. And he's leaving it all in order to follow Jesus. Without hesitation, Levi walks away from his job. And both in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2, you and I are coming face to face with the power of Jesus' call. And I hope that that amazes you. Because that's Mark's goal as he's transitioning, not that they had chapter divisions, but as we transition from chapter one to chapter two, that's Mark's goal. To have us be amazed at the power and at the authority of Jesus Christ, whom he's introduced to us in chapter one, verse one, as the Son of God. And you see it in that first part of chapter two that we read together where Jesus exercises divine authority to forgive the sins of the paralyzed man. The scribes are pulling out their hair. Who is this? Who thinks, you know, he can do what God does. And there's Jesus doing what God does because he is the Son of God. Exercising divine authority to forgive the sins of a paralyzed man. And then he goes on to command that paralyzed man to get up and walk, and the man immediately gets up and walks. And Mark says at the end of that part of our reading, all were amazed and glorified God. And it is that amazement at the power and the authority of Jesus that then carries over into verse 13 where our text begins. And you'll notice the impact of who Jesus is and what he is doing on the crowd in Mark's description of the crowd in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. I mean, if you were writing, if I'm writing, we say he went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him. Why say all the crowd was coming to him? I mean, if you have a crowd, then usually the crowd all comes. But But the picture you're supposed to be getting is the crowd is continuously growing. So all the crowd was coming to Jesus. There is this ever-growing crowd of people because there is this ever-growing buzz around Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. There is amazement among the crowd 
They have never met a religious teacher like Jesus, teaching in ways and teaching things that no one had ever taught. And on top of that, he's healing people. Jesus commands attention. Jesus creates amazement. And as much as you may want more details into the human drama of that moment where Levi gets up out of his tax booth and follows Jesus, Mark wants you to stay focused on Jesus. Mark wants you to see that the command of Jesus to Levi is an irresistible command. It is an irresistible command that leads Levi to do something that is both ridiculous and risky. He gets up and walks away from his life as he knows it, all on the basis of two words, follow me. It's striking that Mark tells us that after Jesus commands him, you know, follow me, he rose and followed him. Striking because, of course, that's exactly what the paralytic did. Jesus commands him to get up, and Mark says, and he rose, and he rose. You know, there's Something amazing going on here. Mark is revealing the motivation behind Levi's departure. That risky and that ridiculous departure from his tax booth, that is from his livelihood and indeed from his life as he knew it. Because there is nothing else in the text that addresses the question of motivation on the part of Levi, we're left with just looking at Jesus as the motivation. That says something to you and me about discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply about what you think about Jesus or what you believe about Jesus. But it is having what you think about Jesus and what you believe about Jesus determine what you do with your life, no matter how risky or ridiculous it seems. For here is the truth that is shining out of our text. Following Jesus is worth whatever it costs you because of who he is, because of what his message is, and because of what his mission is. There is a question for you to ponder in all of this. And the question is, does what you think and does what you believe about Jesus determine what you do as a follower of Jesus? And I'm just going to assume right now you're a follower of Jesus. Does what you think about Jesus, does what you believe about Jesus determine what you do as one of his followers? Or have you separated in your life, what you think about Jesus and what you believe about Jesus from what you do with each day of your life. Well, I want our text to remind you this afternoon that there is much more to discipleship than what you think about Jesus. And much more to discipleship than what you believe about Jesus. 
Discipleship is about having Jesus amaze you. Having Jesus move you so that you follow him, submitting your whole life to him, bringing every moment of every day under his authority. And such is the power of Jesus' call that he says, follow me. And this man named Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. And yet as much as this moment is deja vu all over again, there is something very different about this text as compared to uh, chapter 1 and the four brothers that get called by Jesus. And that one really big difference is that they were fishermen and Levi is a tax collector. And that fact moves us forward towards something that is missing in chapter 1, and that is drama. Chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, has absolutely zero drama, as we like to have drama in a story. There's, There's no dialogue, there's just monologue, and that's Jesus, and he only says a couple of words. There's a whole cast of characters in Mark chapter 1. There's Peter, there's Andrew, there's James, there's John, there's Zebedee, and there's the hired servants, and not one of them ever say anything, and we're never told one thing about any of their thoughts, and there must have been a lot of thoughts going on as Jesus says, follow me. But we don't get any of that in in chapter one, but here in chapter two, as the story transitions from the the call moment to, to what happens after, all of a sudden we have all sorts of drama. We have protagonists and we have antagonists and and we have dialogue and we have people who are outraged at Jesus' call. I was away for a week. I just got back a week ago, a Friday evening. I got home from vacation and I I found there was a notice from FedEx. One of my sons had nicely placed it on the counter. And uh, FedEx had, of course, tried to deliver a package, and now I had to drive all the way to 152 and number 10 to pick up my package. And some of you may know why I had to drive that far to pick up my package. It's because my package had come from the United States of America, and the folks in the U.S. had so nicely... uh, you know, let the FedEx people know that there was probably some GST owing. And so sure enough, uh, I had to go to the FedEx office and I had to pay some GST. I also had to pay FedEx uh, as the collector of the GST. And I had to laugh to myself. I paid $6.38 in GST and I paid $10 to FedEx to collect the $6.38. And then you know what happens, right? Because the $10 is a good or a service, I had to pay another 5% on the $10, so another 50 cents. That brings me to Levi in his tax booth. Any goods that transited through Levi's area, he taxed on behalf of the Roman government. Now, it's kind of annoying when FedEx collects taxes for our government, but now imagine that they would do that for a foreign government, 
that you have to pay, I don't know, to the United States of America. Their government is taxing you. So Levi was not really anyone's favorite person because he was that guy who sat in his booth and anytime you had any goods that transited through his area, he would tax you the value of your goods on behalf of the Roman government. He was a Jew working for the Romans and he was despised for it. But that's not the only reason he was despised. He was also despised because he was like the FedEx guys. He took his own fee for collecting the government's fees. And while one could argue that probably FedEx was you know, fair to me in dinging me for 10 bucks, uh, one couldn't always make that argument for the tax collectors like Levi. They tended to get in the area of criminal when they said, and now you owe me a little bit as well. And it tended to be more than a little bit. And so no one liked Levi because he worked for the Roman government. No one liked Levi because he was effectively a thief and he was allowed to be a thief because he was working for the Roman government. But that's not even the worst of it. His name's Levi, which suggests that he was from the tribe of Levi, that one tribe that God had set apart from all the other tribes of Israel to especially work for him. And now here's Levi, not working for the Lord, but he's working for the Romans. Well, if there's anyone who was ever, you know, morally bankrupt, then surely it must have been this guy named Levi sitting in his tax booth. And Jesus walks up to this guy and he says, follow me. Jesus calls him to be one of the 12 of the inner circle the apostles, as we would later call them. We're, we're not scandalized by Jesus calling fishermen, but we, we're scandalized by Jesus calling this man. But it is in the nature of grace that it is a scandalous thing. I think of the scandalous words of the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to the Romans. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Well, as if that were not outrageous enough, you read the story with me. There's a dinner party afterwards. A banquet at Levi's house. And Jesus goes and he reclines at table for an average meal in first century Israel you sat at a table just like you sit at a table but when it gets to banquet party category they they bring in the low tables and the cushions and everyone's just kind of lounging and reclining and and talking and and eating and drinking and this party is filled with morally bankrupt people Mark says and he reclined at table in Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And I want you to, again, it's so, it's so worth paying attention to words, isn't it? Many 
tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It wasn't just like one or two token guests. No, there's, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of tax collectors and, and sinners. Now, you have to understand sinners makes up this broad category of particularly corrupt, morally corrupt people. Tax collectors had their own subcategory together with all the other thieves because that's pretty much what they were. And then you had the other subcategories like the sexually immoral and that was filled with prostitutes. And Jesus is reclining at table with all of these people. We say, what is Jesus doing? And Mark tells us, he says, for there were many who followed him. That's fascinating. Many among this ever-growing crowd, which included tax collectors and sinners, many were following Jesus. And you need to understand, these are not your run-of-the-mill sinners. I'm assuming most of you are run-of-the-mill sinners. You, You fail here or you fail there to keep this part or that part of God's law. These are not those people. These are the people who got their own special category because they're living completely outside the bounds of God's law and they're drawn to Jesus and they're drawn to his teaching and they're drawn to that message of good news. Not because it affirms them in their sin and they feel really comfortable with this guy named Jesus. Not at all. Jesus calls, Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus calls for repentance and faith. And yet here they are, they're streaming to Jesus. They're coming to Jesus. Many of them are following Jesus. These people who knew all about bad news are drawn to this man who has a message of good news. But the scene in Levi's house tells us that it's not just the message that draws them. It's also the man that draws them. My wife shared a quote with me this week, and this is the quote. Your truth will not be heard until your grace is felt. Your truth will not be heard until your grace is felt. Jesus was preaching the truth of the gospel, including that call to repent and believe. And the tax collectors didn't just hear the truth, they felt the grace of Jesus. He was willing to do for them what pretty much everyone else like him in the community would not do for them. He was willing to be with them. He was willing to spend time with them. He was willing to eat with them and drink with them. He was willing to show love to them. But for the scribes of the Pharisees, talk about categories. You've got Pharisees, very religious people, very much about the law including the oral law in addition to the law of Moses. And then you have the specialists within that, the guys who who knew the law to every jot and every tittle as Jesus talks about it at one point. These guys are in the house because Jesus is no respecter of persons. These guys are in the house and they find what is going on there to be scandalous. I'm intrigued by how the New Living Translation captures kind of the sense of of outrage because the question as we read it suggests potentially curiosity. You know, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? We're kind of curious here. What's, what's kind of what's going on? New Living Translation. But when the teachers of the religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Why does he eat with such scum? And now we're going to return to that thing that can potentially get in the way of this church pursuing its vision. And that is the pursuit of holiness. And it's a paradox. That is, it is an apparent contradiction, a seeming contradiction that the pursuit of holiness would actually prevent the pursuit of the vision you've adopted as a church. It is a seeming contradiction that holiness and the pursuit of holiness can get in the way of the church's mission. But it can. It doesn't need to. It shouldn't, but it can. If the church makes the mistake of the Pharisees and of their scribes. Because for the Pharisees, the whole Pursuit of holiness meant complete and utter separation from anyone who did not share their pursuit. And this separation was driven by fear. It was driven by the fear of contamination. They feared that the moral uncleanness of others would rub off on them so that they would become morally unclean in the sight of God. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners and buried in the question is a hostile accusation. You, Jesus, are morally bankrupt. You, Jesus, are no different than them because you, Jesus, are eating with them and you are drinking with them. Jesus has no such fear. Jesus does not feel compelled to separate himself from anyone, especially sinners. Jesus does not worry that maintaining his holiness somehow is jeopardized by the unholiness of others. Jesus knows that the kingdom cannot be contaminated by sinners entering into it. But rather the kingdom is the only place where sinners can go to find reconciliation with God and to experience transformation by God. And so Jesus responds to the experts of the law with a well-known proverb, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Why am I spending time with tax collectors and sinners? For the same reason the doctor spends time with sick people. Healthy people don't make appointments with the doctor. Most of us don't like seeing the doctor. And we avoid the doctor like the plague if we can because we know that if we're going to the doctor, there's something wrong. But when there's something wrong, we're really glad we have a family doctor. And we're really glad there's a hospital. 
And we are drawn to the doctor and we are drawn to the ER because that's what they're there for. They're there for sick people. And many tax collectors and sinners reclined at table with Jesus for many followed him. And Jesus takes the proverb and explains what the Pharisees are witnessing. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And I want you to notice that Jesus adopts the category that everyone's using. He adopts the category of sinners. Jesus has no quarrel with the category. Jesus affirms that these people are sinners. Yet at the very same time, he affirms that those are the people he came for. I came for them. I came to call them into the kingdom. I came to call them to experience the joy of God's transforming grace. I came that they might experience the joy of my victory over sin and over Satan and over sickness and over death. I came to touch their sin-sick souls. I came to heal their sin-affected bodies. And what joy there is in heaven, Luke chapter 15, what joy there is in heaven, says Jesus, when one of those sinners hears my call and repents. More joy than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in his call, which is heard in his words and in his deeds, there is a pattern for this church. This church has been given the Spirit of Christ in order that you may carry on the mission of Christ, calling sinners with the authority of Christ and with the tenderness of Christ. I am aware that sometimes people say, We can't do what Jesus did at Levi's house because Jesus was perfect and we are not. But no matter how thin you slice the bologna, it's still bologna. It's simply not true. I want you to notice who was reclining at table with the many tax collectors and sinners. It was not just Jesus. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and who? His disciples. Why are the disciples there? Because Jesus says, follow me. And so wherever Jesus went, they went. He went into Levi's house and there was tax collectors and sinners there and they went with Jesus because Jesus said, follow me. Make no mistake, you are to pursue holiness with a passion and with a zeal. You are to daily submit yourself to the authority of the word of Christ, whether that word has to do with your money or has to do with sex. But that does not require you to separate yourself completely. 
completely from anyone who does not share your pursuit. If so, says Jesus, you're going to have to leave this world. The very world to which he sends us as his church. You see, such an understanding of the pursuit of holiness is born out of, out of a spirit of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. The operating assumption is that your goodness is the thing that sets you apart from others in the category of sinners. Well, those in the category of sinners have this unique ability to sniff out spiritual pride and self-righteousness in the church in a heartbeat, and there will be no crowd that's gathering around. Recognize, beloved, that your pursuit of holiness is testimony to the grace of God in you. For you were also once in the other category, and maybe some of you still are. Lost and blind, but now found and able to see. And it is grace that opens your eyes And it's grace that enables you to continue to see and pursue all that is good and right and holy as Jesus taught us. And if you love those who love you, says Jesus, what reward do you have? And I don't know if you remember the next statement. He says, do not even tax collectors do the same. The world so easily divides into two loving communities who hate each other. You have the community of Jesus' disciples who love each other and hate the sinners. And you have the community of sinners who love each other and hate the church. But what happens when the community of Jesus' disciples loves the community of sinners? What happens when this church loves thieves and prostitutes and people who prefer to identify with letters like L and G and B and T. The cynic says, the doctor will get sick from her patients. And the self-righteous say, the church will become defiled. But the gospel says, there were many who followed him. And Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's Jesus' vision and mission wrapped up into one. And I noticed it's yours too. And may you embrace this vision and this mission by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.